Hello and welcome to episode 79 of Can We Still Be Friends, a podcast that tests the limits of the friendship between two people who mistake movie taste for personal morality. I'm Nate Goss, here with Ryan Ebling. As the year comes to a close, we've decided not to watch a holiday movie this year. Instead, we're looking back at the last decade, and we've each come up with a list of our favorite 10 movies of the last 10 years. There's not much science to these lists, just a lot of reflecting and a little bit of rewatching, which is pretty much the MO for this podcast. We aren't setting out to end the year with a knockdown dragout fight, but who can say where this conversation will go? Keep listening. All right. Well, uh, that was a clip of uh, nothing because we didn't have a clip of yeah, anything this, no, we this episode. Do a, a clip of twenty movies. It was. In, we're, we're so tied to our template, yeah. that we had to have an off mic conversation for a while about well, how are we going to do this? Yeah. How are we going to segue from this intro to this very different episode of ours? I, this I, very special episode. Very special us, episode of Can We Still Be friends? friends? Yeah. I uh, I I think we're both realizing how tied to our routine we were even right. though it wasn't a routine that we like set out it's a routine we've established and we're breaking that routine we 79 usually... episodes in it is a good occasion it is i mean um as far as i know this only happens once every 10 years where there's the end of a decade yeah i hadn't even thought about that but i think you're right but we're going to talk about uh our favorite movies of the decade that, that right. this would be 2010 through this year 2019 mm-hmm we each have our lists. Yeah. What we said in our last episode is still true. We're going to share our top 10, but only talk about our top five. Right. And I do. I have no clue what's on your list. Yeah, I don't know what yours is either. We, we, we committed to that radio silence. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a miracle we even... Again. Yeah, it's a miracle we even were able to get this coordinated to get together. Right. I was just at the ready, and I got the I got word about an hour ago, you better get out there. It's, it's time. And I, I, I came out here, so... Yeah, we we said at the end of the episode last time that this is going to be a list of our favorite movies of the decade. We're not going to try to say it's the best. Mm -hmm. I think that's just a way to avoid any blowback we might receive because we wouldn't (laughs) call it a favorite if we didn't think it was the best, really, you know? Sure. But I think we're also acknowledging that best is dumb anyway. Right. And I think for our podcast, it just makes sense. You know, our personalities are so much a part of this that we're mm-hmm. just going to talk about our favorites. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of different ways I went about this list. So I, I would be curious to know how you went about your list and I'll kind of share about how I went about my list. Yeah. I I really, it was just movies that, that keep coming back to me. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think of movies over the last 10 years or even like, what are the ones that just come to mind, really? And then as... um. I was looking at other people's lists or just looking at lists of movies. Which ones were like, oh, yeah. Like, they just kind of had that feeling for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Um, and then from there, I had to sort, you know, kind of narrow the list down. So some of it was, which ones did I just, when I watched it, I had a great time. Or it gave me some sort of feeling that I don't feel like other movies gave me or it, it and that might just be because it connected with me at a time or whatever um i didn't exclusively go with movies that i've seen more than once but that was sort of a sign to me that mm-hmm. if i'd already seen it a couple times it was something that should be in consideration sure yeah you usually don't hate the movies you watch over and over again yeah and um however this is gonna sound generally movies that like spoke to me that mm-hmm. that like really connected with something. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a couple of them, they connected with me in different ways as I rewatched them or as the decade went on. So what about what about you? Uh, very much the same. Um, I think that uh, for me, it was a lot of what 
what moved me. I think that that is a good way to put it, even though that's kind of a hard thing to nail down what you mean by yeah. that. I think movie by movie, it means different things. Yeah. Um, you know, the rewatch factor was also something that I had in mind. Um, I don't actually rewatch movies that much, period. Mm-hmm. So if I did rewatch a movie, it probably is because either it was challenging enough that I felt like I needed to, or it was just rewatchable because it was rewatchable. It was a really fun movie to watch or mm-hmm. it really connected with me in some way. I also agree with you in that to start, it was a very instinctual thing. It was just like in my memories, what were the scenes? What were the things that just have really, I haven't been able to let go. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also tried to think about movies that kind of had to be movies. Like they wouldn't work as TV shows Mm. um, that they're kind of what reminded me of what makes the feature film a really great and special art form to me as well. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, when I, when I was compiling this, I basically went onto my letterbox um, and I made a list of just all those movies that hit that point to me. And I was like, oh, crap, because it was like 30. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I got to get this down to 10 and then I have to rank them. So I would say at the very end, it really was a factor of what were the ones that if I could put any sort of hype or critical consensus aside, just me personally, what did I like the most? Yeah. And then... I did at the end kind of have to factor in, okay, I love, 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 love all of these movies. How am I going to rank them? Yeah. Then it really did come down to, uh, okay, maybe I do kind of need to think of, well, you know, maybe this movie is just a little bit better than this one, you know, or that, that little bit of that more qualitative mm. sort of like, yeah, this, this movie I love, but it didn't quite, maybe this movie executed this thing just a little bit better. Um, and so the ranking part was very hard for me. Definitely. You know, when you talk about being moved, I know what you're, I, I know what you're talking about where it's it's hard to kind of say exactly what that means i think one thing that i thought about as i kind of landed on my list the movies that stick with me are movies that are really using its story or its art to process something to process a feeling or an experience or a phenomenon that you can look at academically that you can kind of reflect on personally but then the movie puts it in a in a certain context or a way that just breaks it open or in some cases sort of relishes or explores the complexity without breaking it open because it just can't happen, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, for me, when I ended up with my top five, I, I kind of said like, which of the five do I want to talk about? Sure. Too, yeah. You know, cause you know, when they're up there at the top 10, it's, it doesn't really matter like of all like the thousands of movies that came out in the decade. Right. But uh, which ones did I think I wanted to talk about? That maybe we won't ever do a full episode on or something, but sure, you know. So, do you want to talk about like what's changed for you over the decade? Is that something that's coming to mind? Or yeah, uh, I think that we should. I think we should talk about what the decade was for us, mm-hmm. movies or not. Yeah, you know, uh, because especially as I went and rewatched movies that were older in the decade, like from earlier on. Yeah, I was like, oh, life experience changes <clears throat> everything. Mm-hmm. You know, and and the major events in your life they become a prism that you look through all art with, you know? Um, And I think that our experiences are, I'm going to guess our major life experiences are very similar. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, In that uh, for me, my decade, if I had to define it, uh, I could define it sort of on the personal level and I could define it sort of on the, you know, more cultural national level. Sure. Two events would be becoming a father. Mm-hmm. I became a dad in 2013. Uh, my my boys, they're twins. Um, they're six now. So I have kind of a the beginning of the decade is like I'm not a parent to becoming a parent and the sort of like yeah. 
life altering, mm-hmm. like just atomic bomb that goes off when mm-hmm. that happens. And then also just sort of now as my boys are maturing and they're no longer infants or toddlers and they're actual just they're boys, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the way I watch any movie dealing with yeah. parenting or families is entirely different. Um, and the movies that, you know, move me as we've talked about yep. several times now, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, they, they, they move me in different ways or they move me period. And they maybe wouldn't have moved me before. Mm-hmm. Um, or sometimes I'll watch a movie and I'll be like, yeah, I, this, this one doesn't do it for me anymore. Yep. And then I think, uh, the other one that I, I, I think just changes everything is the real change in our, uh, political and cultural landscape yep. landscape. Uh, you know, I think you can market with the 2016 election if you wanted to, mm-hmm. um, but there were precursors and things leading up to that. But I think there was sort of in this decade, uh, a before that and an after that. And yep. you saw that in the movie making as well. Yeah. Um, and, and a couple other things too, you know, you had cultural movements that I paid attention to and they did impact me and, you know, they all have hashtags, you know, so yep. black lives matter, me too, Within the movie realm, Oscar's so white. These mm-hmm. are things that all happened over the decade. The mm-hmm. fact that there are hashtags, and right. of course Twitter existed before the decade, but I think the fact that these hashtags became the way we talk about cultural movements right. um, impacted also the movies that are on my list. You know, there are movies that are on my list that I don't know they could have gotten made or at least gotten the attention that they got the decade prior to this. Yeah. Um, and I certainly don't know if I would have watched them with as open of a mind or with the same level of perception mm-hmm. that I had just paying attention more mm-hmm. this decade to that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm there with you. I, I mean, I got married at the beginning of the decade okay. in 2010. Uh, That's right. I became yeah, a father yeah. in 2016, had a second child um, two years later. Um, that definitely changes things. Not only did I watch way more movies in the previous decade than I did this decade, um, but I don't know for what this is going to sound like, what I allow into my home or into my head um, yeah, changes yeah. Mm-hmm. because there's a lot more there now. <laughs> and that is, uh, you know, like you said, parenthood being married but then, yeah, politically. And uh, I actually, it was interesting today. And I, I don't know if it was a subconscious decision or whatever, but I, 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 I had the urge to go and kind of purge my DVD collection. And there were things in there that I'm like, I don't want to see this again. Mm, yeah. And I don't need to have that story in my life. And I don't think it's uh, prudishness now or anything. I think it's just sort of discerning what am I going to spend my time on? And I think, too, just my emotional attachment to movies is different. I don't need movies to be the greatest thing or the worst thing or um, the measure of the goodness of a person based on whether they liked it or not. (laughs) I guess this podcast is over then. (laughs) I know that it really has changed because that was what we started. And I think five years ago, we both did sort of still hold that sort of. But I think, strangely, by... Forcing ourselves to have that like type of conversation with somebody we really care about and see that that like hurts both of us. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. It, it was sort of like, not like, I don't think, I, well, there have been times where we've hurt each other's feelings, I think. Sure. And even outside the podcast, I think sure. what it comes, you know, in those instances, <laughs> it, what, what I realize in, um, and it does apply even to, to our list and maybe how we talk about our list is, uh, you know, that when you do that, when you start arguing with someone, especially if it's some, a movie they hold very dear, mm-hmm. you know, you're really arguing with their experience. And that's sure. something that's very hard to argue with. Yeah. Like, like yeah. okay. Yeah. You know, that's a good like, way to put it. 
why not only is it a hard thing to argue with but you kind of have to start asking yourself like why do i want to yeah like why do i want to ruin this person's experience yeah. i mean and that does not to say that we haven't had amazing conversations about just analyzing critically movies yeah. and, and and pulling apart all the different pieces we like and don't like about them yeah no i should probably apply that to like other areas of my life that sort of like perspective but um well and i think that is something that happened over the decade not just for the two of us but i think culturally as yeah. well was there was a less of a there was a less of a sense of a cultural consensus yeah yeah you know that there wasn't this sort of like everybody loves this movie because for every movie that everybody loved you read a pretty good think piece on yeah. well did you think of it this way because <laughs> right. honestly if you didn't think of it this way you probably didn't think about yeah. it hard enough you yeah. know and, and maybe you shouldn't have liked that movie that you love so much and for this reason that you know? too is one of the big changes of this last decade and i think you've been going through the change too of just realizing how limited my perspective is even yeah. though as a white man my perspective has been sold as the universal perspective exactly yeah it is not and that changes a lot of stuff yeah and that is definitely a demarcation of early in this decade definitely later in this decade for definitely me. and before we jump right into our list i did want to because uh, since we're just talking about the decade in general uh, you know one of our listeners aj left a really good voicemail about just the i guess just the the ways that movie watching sort yeah. of changed over the decade and so why don't we just listen to his voicemail mm -hmm. um before we jump into our actual films greetings nate and ryan it's andrew here are a variety of thoughts that I have about movies in the last decade. For one, this decade in movies was actually kind of my decade in kid movies. It seems that my focus has been diverted uh, towards the land of kid movies and all that that entails. By far, still, Pixar reigns king. Uh, it gives me an excuse to watch them, but kids are no. Pixar movies are all the tops. Everybody else is just a competitor. I will say, within the past decade, though, DreamWorks has come on with much better alternatives, one of which being How to Train Your Dragon. My second thought with the last decade in movies is all wrapped around streaming services. So the streaming services have really taken over our lives, and they've changed the way that movies work. But it seems that the the way that streaming services have come out have pushed the movie industry in two different directions. Uh, in one direction, it is hearkening back to cheaper made movies so that you can get them out quicker and then up on the streaming services faster, like the whole glut of rom-com movies that Netflix has been pursuing. Those have been thoroughly entertaining and uh, it seems that more movies are now finding life who kind of fit in that niche. And then the other thing is streaming services affected how movie theaters treated patrons. And we as moviegoers were given this opportunity, you know, come see our movies and here is the exorbitant bill that you have to now tackle. It really just seemed like going to the movies was the biggest pain in the neck 
but I think for you all, as you're talking about what happened in movies in the past decade, I would say that the subscription service changed the way we both go to watch movies at home and go to movies because MoviePass pushed the envelope and forced uh, movie theater chains to start offering subscription services. And so now, a year and a half after I canceled my MoviePass subscription because it was so bad, I now am a proud subscriber to Cinemark's uh, movie subscription service because it allows us uh, to see movies for cheaper. Hope you guys are well. Peace. You know, I thought that was a really good point about just what streaming has done. Right. I mean, even just this year, yeah. uh, which I don't know that we'll talk about 2019 too much, but, mm-hmm. you know, if you look at the movies this year that everyone's really talking about, they're, they're movies that have pretty much landed on streaming platforms. Yeah, you know? and I think there's a lot of, like, complaining that the big movies at the theaters are remakes, are sequels, are... Superhero movies, that sort franchises, of stuff. yeah. It makes sense that if they're going to put that sort of money into it, they're going to put it into the guaranteed thing. It's unfortunate that that a, a like a more experimental, a smaller voice maybe won't get the theater space that it would have, but it's definitely going to get more exposure potentially right. in, in streaming. I think the movie industry needed a shakeup, needs right. continues to need a shakeup, but I think that theaters will only be able to weather it if they are allowing less mainstream voices mm-hmm. to have a say as to where things head. But yeah. I uh, really appreciate AJ's thoughts on that um, and th- his approach to the decade. Yeah. All right. So you want to you want to give? We each give our ten. We each give our nine. We each give our eight. Or do you want me to give my ten through six? Why don't wh- Why don't we just run through our ten through okay. six? Because I, I don't know that we really have time to right. talk too much. And for anyone who is curious to dig a little bit more into our lists, we will have them published live on our Letterboxd accounts, um, and we will link to those in our show notes. All right. Um, I'm going to go first because I cheated. You cheated? Well, what, what the hell, man? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So my, my 10 is, I couldn't pick one. And I, I'm going, I, I'm going to, I know. You're going to do 11, aren't you? This is what, oh, come on. So my 10, and, I'm, and I know we're not supposed to talk about these, but I want to explain myself on this. Okay. My 10 is Black Swan slash The Fighter. Okay. Okay. Wow, that's a face. Well, I you, you say that as if they go together. I don't say no. Oh, well, okay. I okay, mean, okay. there is. It was. I couldn't. I couldn't pick one over the other. Okay. I was not making a value judgment on either okay. of those films. I was more making okay. a value judgment on the your tactics here. The yeah. I know. I know. So, but they do sort of go together in a sense. All right. Um, not not the movies themselves, but the, my thoughts behind them. For the fighter, it was. I had a blast at that movie. In the theater. And then I watched it again later, and I had just as much of a blast. Mm-hmm. Like, the boxing movie, David O. Russell did enough of a tweak on it that it was exciting again. It was, uh, there was a lot to it that kind of, like, took this well-worn territory and did something sort of new with it. Okay. Also, David O. Russell is somebody who made an impact earlier in the 2000s and the late 90s yeah, yeah. and sort of, like, um, to see him kind of have a movie that was, like, an Oscar movie, that sort of thing. Sure, like, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Black Swan, I had an extremely visceral experience in the theater again. Not the elation, but like the horror, the bonkersness of that movie. Right, yes. And that movie made over $300 million, Black Swan. And so Darren Aronofsky, 2000s, late 90s, this like really exciting filmmaker making this Oscar-winning movie. Okay. Um, Taking, I guess, a known genre of like, 
struggling artist and like you know the up and comer that sort of thing but then infusing it not just with like quirk but with horror, horror. yeah and another movie that when i rewatched it had as much of a visceral reaction mm. to so yeah black swan on the fighter at number nine the social network okay a little surprised it's that far down the list but what are you gonna do number eight stories we tell hmm all right the documentary uh, the documentary by sarah poli and once I once I put documentary in here, I was sort of like, oh, how do I leave out Minding the Gap? How do I leave out, you know... Oh, yeah, documentary could have its own some list. Some of these other ones. Yeah. But I felt like stories we tell needed to be in there. Uh, number seven, Lady Bird. Okay. Number six, Manchester by the Sea. All right. What are you looking at? <laughs> that's, that's in your list. That's it. That's, that's the end yeah. of it. That's it. Yeah. Uh, maybe these, maybe no, these are... I'm sorry. We weren't supposed to talk about them, but I had to explain my, my, my two for Okay. So, you know, one thing that could be interesting before we jump right into our top five uh, is sort of like surprises. Sure. So for me, kind of surprise Manchester by the Sea is is that low for I, you. I, hey, that's that was part of the face that I was right. making at you. And, uh, you know, and my surprises only come from actually knowing you right. so much. Kind of surprise stories we tell is even on the list, although we have talked about it. Um, mm. I just, I feel like I never knew that it was that that impactful for I've you. I've seen it three times, yeah. That's crazy. Well, it's a really fascinating documentary. Mm-hmm. We could talk a lot about that We one. could. <laughs> I would like to, but yeah. I yeah, need to rewatch no, that one. I know, I yeah. know Manchester by the Sea. That was actually, as I was leaving the house, Manchester by the Sea dropped to six. Okay. Yeah, I had stuff From that five. moved around today too. All right, well, yeah, and now I'm excited to, to hear what the top five are, but let's just run really quickly my, my 10 through six. I don't think I really have to explain too much of any of them, Okay. Um, but, uh, but here they are. So 10 for me is Mad Max Dre Road. Mm-hmm. Uh, nine would be Roma. Mm-hmm. Eight would be The Writer. I'm not sure if a lot of people have heard or seen that movie. That's Chloe Zhao's movie that came out last year about um, a sort of star rodeo guy who has oh, the a, rider the rider r-i-d-e-r that's one yeah i want to see that uh, one. fantastic that one. movie i cannot recommend it enough i mean it's on my top 10 of the decade and it should be reiterated i don't think i can reiterate enough just by being on this list <laughs> i am saying these are must-see incredible movies right you know, and i'm sure you right. are as well right. so Okay, eight's the writer. Seven, Of Gods and Men. This is a French oh, yeah. film by Xavier uh, Beauvoir. It's based on the true story of the 1996 kidnapping uh, and killing of seven monks in Algeria. Mm-hmm. A very powerful film. Yep. I should also mention for some of these, when we talk about moving, I don't know how much people know or don't know about us. I am a, a spiritual person, and yeah. so some of these are actual spiritual experiences I had watching this, and I would count that as one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, number six uh, is Never Let Me Go. How does that know on my list? The, the uh, Mark Romanek uh, directed adaptation of Kazuo, Kazuo, Katsuo Ishiguro, Katsuo Ishiguro uh, novel, mm-hmm. both of which are absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, they are. So, um, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm surprised that that one's not on your list. I'm yeah, surprised. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, I mean, tipping my hand, yeah, it's not on my list. I do love that movie. I actually teach that movie. And I... I I, maybe I've seen that movie too, too much, much to even think about it I being see that. in my time. Yeah. Like, because Take Shelter is another one that could yeah. potentially be in my. Nah, probably, nah, Take Shelter wouldn't be in my top ten. But. No, yeah, and Take Shelter is one I rewatched because I thought it would be, um, and I rewatched it not to say anything bad about mm-hmm. it, but it just didn't quite cut it for me. So no, I get still that. a great movie. I get yeah. that. I mean, I know Never Let Me Go Backwards and Forwards, so I almost feel like it's outside the list for me <laughs> i will say let me say one thing about that movie before we jump in what i love about that movie is and and i think this was maybe in the special features we've talked about this before mm-hmm. mark romantic talking about how do you make a movie that's an adaptation of a novel that's just so beautifully written right and his goal was to just make the actual film 
itself as gorgeous as what the words do on the page. Yep. Um, and, you know, whether he succeeds at that or not is up to you to decide when you right. watch it. Um, but it is just a beautiful movie to watch. It is. Know? And uh, somehow he can achieve the same tone, like the yeah. sort of melancholic yeah. but beautiful sort of tone uh, yes. yeah. with the filmmaking. And a lot of that also, uh, I, I give credit to um, Rachel Portman, who uh, composed the score oh, uh, right. for that film. All right, so... Um, that's our uh, 10 through 6. Yeah, I knew I needed to see The Rider. Otherwise, I don't think there was anything that surprised me. I don't think my I list I guess is... Never Let Me Go kind of surprised me. That's that high for you. Oh, but... okay. It's just one of the... I, I haven't rewatched that many movies, and I have rewatched that one. Yeah. Um, and sure. I also... Okay, let me say uh, also another factor that's tiny in my list making, but reading other lists and not seeing certain movies yeah, and being you know, like, you know what? That's probably why I Never wanted, Let Me Go didn't get back in my head like, because nobody put it on any like, list. I want people to talk about that movie. Yeah. Like, I don't want it to get forgotten. You yeah. know? And that was, that was a very small part of some of my list as yeah, well. So. I can see that. All right. So before we dive in, mm-hmm. we did have a call from Evan, occasional guest on the podcast, good friend of ours. Yeah. Uh, last episode he was on was Children of Men, if you want to go back to the archives. Mm-hmm. That was a great conversation we've had with him. That would be on my list if it were in this decade. Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Why couldn't it have been from this decade? <laughs> let's talk about Children of Men all over again. But let's listen to Evan. He just basically went through his five favorites. Um, and I don't, you know, and, and, and he brought up some films that uh, definitely were ones that I was considering, yep. but he made some really good points and mm-hmm. some really good cases for him. So let's just give a listen to that. Hi, Nate and Ryan. This is Evan checking in with my favorite movies of the last decade. There's no scientific study that has determined their greatness. Um, It's all subjective anyways. Um, Also, I didn't rank them, partly because I'm lazy uh, and partly because I just really couldn't decide. So they are in alphabetical order. Uh, I'm going to kick things off with Arrival from 2016. Um... It is not the first Denis Villeneuve movie I saw, but it's the one where I really realized the techniques he had and how they could be applied to so many different genres. Um, It's a sci-fi that works your brain, but is uh, secretly looking to punch you in the heart. I also remember, um, not to get too political, when I saw it in late November 2016, I remember it being the first time I felt hopeful again. Um, Speaking of hopeful... This will bring us to our second movie, um, The Florida Project, uh, directed by Sean Baker. Um, It is uh, maybe a career-best performance from Willem Dafoe, along with amazing debuts from the first-time actors um, and the rest of the main cast. It has such a distinctive look and tone. Um, It's one of the most empathetic and uh, humanistic uh, movies I saw all decade. My next film is Inside Lewin Davis. It is the Coen Brothers uh, film from 2013. They are at the top of their game. It has amazing music. It is both their uh, acidic sense of humor and their philosophic look on everything. Also uh, discovering Oscar Isaac, who may be the defining actor of the decade. Maybe. Don't quote me on that. Uh, The next movie was kind of factory made uh, for my tastes. It is Sing Street, directed by John Carney from 2016. It's a romance, but as much a romance for discovering a creative outlet as the sort of central monogamous romance found in the middle of the movie. Um, It is pure movie comfort food for me. And to finish out my top five of the decade, 
uh, is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I don't think we can talk about this decade without talking about superhero films, a genre that's really uh, defined the 2010s. Um, but with its innovative animation style, um, that really harkens back to the root of comics in that paper form. It embraced the absurdity of superhero stories. It had amazing vocal performances um, and was probably the most fun I had at the movies all decade. Thanks for uh, all the podcasting and giving me uh, something better than the empty void to shout my opinions into. Uh, excited to hear what all your favorites were. I'm so glad he brought up Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Yeah. So glad he brought up Arrival. Yeah. And Sing Street even. That was a great movie. Yeah. I, I really, yeah, that I was mean, a lot of fun. All right. So let's, let's, should we get into it? The, the top five. Let's do it. And so when, uh, since I went first, I'll, I'll just continue that. Okay. Um, and I will tell you that I have no double entries from here on out. <laughs> Okay. We would be we'd be having it. some words. Yes. If you thought the rules didn't apply. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, number five, and I, I'm a little bit surprised this one is at five and not higher, but number five for me is the master. Okay. Paul Thomas Anderson directing Philip Seymour Hoffman for the last time. Joaquin Phoenix, Amy Adams. I mean the the cast generally is great. Uh Jesse Plemons, uh Rami Malik. Cast is great and you're getting amazing characters out yes, of them yeah so for me the master is like most pt anderson movies post magnolia which is the first time i saw it i was like i had to reorient my entire concept of a story and a character and then i had to watch it again and maybe another time mm-hmm. to really sort out what was happening in the movie and the Master is a crazy ride. Sure, it might be a movie about Scientology, possibly, but it's about way more. And I haven't seen it uh, in the last three years, so I wonder what it would be like to think about this movie in terms of more or less, you know, a fraud preying on people's weaknesses to empower himself mm-hmm. and to increase his influence. And you talk about scenes that just like stand out. Just those moments where the power is changing hands and it's happening at a moment that the person who had power suddenly realizes that they had lost power a long time ago. I think about the scene with the motorcycle where mm, yeah. Freddie, Joaquin Phoenix's character, just keeps riding. And Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance is amazing, but also just the function of that scene in the movie is yeah. just so powerful. Yeah. There are weird moments that throw you for a loop. There are really touching moments. There are really hard-to-watch moments. Mm-hmm. And it is always beautiful, like the, the, the film. Of course, yeah. It's a really remarkable movie. It's, it's insane what P.T. Anderson continues to pull off. And I, it's possible that if I had rewatched it, Phantom Thread would be somewhere up here. I was thinking the same thing, you know, um, about... And maybe a couple years from now, I'll realize it should have been on here. Yeah. You know, I need to rewatch it a couple more yeah. times. But it's definitely a movie that doesn't sit easy, The Master. But it shouldn't, you know? It's, right. It's not supposed to sit easy because it's exposing and exploring a lot of parts that are natural to people in the low moments. Mm-hmm. The more you watch it, the more you see 
the humanity of everybody, and you see the insecurity driving everybody. I have a feeling we might talk a little bit more about this later. Okay. But uh, but <laughs> I will say, <laughs> but I will say that um, there is a dividing line that you're talking about. Basically, when there will be blood started, yeah. where I almost feel like they are so dumbfounding mm-hmm. that if the craftsmanship weren't at such impeccable levels, yeah. Like I feel like that's sometimes the only thing that's keeping you holding on from just dismissing it outright. Mm-hmm. It is beautiful. It is like so tightly made. Mm-hmm. That's kind of just what what makes you hold on to it. Mm-hmm. And then you realize that I'm so glad I held on to that because I don't. I still don't know what I feel about that movie. But man, I've got a million things going on in my mind about mm-hmm. that movie. Um, mm-hmm. And I and I have to rewatch it. I don't know what it is. There's a. I'm compelled to rewatch his movies. He himself, I think, has become like a humbler person. Even though his movies have gotten a little bit more esoteric and prestigious <laughs> and and people might say they're kind of pompous, he himself, I think, has become a humbler person. And um, I really do think that that shows in the way he's willing to show the flaws and let them play out in various scenes. And then he just knows how to direct actors. And that's, yeah. that scene, the first scene, like major scene between uh, Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman on the ship, it's unbelievable. Oh, She's psychotic. Yes. What is the name of your aunt? Bertha. How did you come to have sex with your auntie, Bertha? I was drunk and she looked good. And you did it again and again? Yes. Have you ever had bad thoughts about Master Peggy? Yes. What did you think? I thought you were fools. Am I a fool to you? No, sir. If you were locked in a room for the rest of your life, who would be in there with you? Doris. Who's Doris? Best girl I ever met girl I'm going to marry one day. Is she in Lynn? Yes. Lynn, Massachusetts? Yes, sir. Why aren't you with her? Uh, I'm an idiot. Why aren't you with that lovely girl? I got no reason. I'm a fool. Do you love Doris? Yes. Is she the love of your life? Yes, sir. Why aren't you with her? I don't know. Yes, you do. Tell me why you're not with her if you love her so much. I told her I'd come back, and I never went back, and now I just, I gotta get back to her. Why don't you go back? I don't know. Why don't you go back? I don't know! Close your eyes. There's something to a P.T. Anderson performance that that is just utterly unique. Yes, yeah. My number five, though, is one that I know will not be on your list, and I am surprised it's on mine, but here we are. Oh. Uh, and that is uh, Hell or High Water, uh, which is... I thought that would be on yours, actually. <laughs> Did you really? Yep. Okay. This is one that um, it could have just been my experience watching it the first time, where it was one of those where my wife and I had the rare moment after having kids of a sort of spontaneous opportunity to go see a movie. Mm-hmm. And we were like, oh... I've heard some good things about this. Let's just go check it out. Mm-hmm. And um, just being really blown away by it. Um, and sometimes that happens only because your expectations were not there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hell or High Water is Taylor Sheridan's, uh, is the writer here, uh, who I think is really sort of the one who's coming through personality-wise in this. Uh, directed by David McKenzie, though. Directed very well. Uh, this is the closest thing to a Western I'm going to have on my list. And I, I am definitely a fan of the Western genre, so I was glad to be able to uh, include something that was close to it here. I just feel like this movie has uh, a really impressive sense of um, both place and time. Um, so you are getting Taylor Sheridan, who grew up on the border, his uh, understanding of Texas and also uh, the time being right in the midst of the, uh, the recession. This movie came out in 2016. We already talked about what mm-hmm. happened in 2016, but this came out in November. It was already made in the can before we would have known what was going to happen with the election. Mm-hmm. And how many think pieces, how many 
you know, essays did we have to read? How many books were published about who are these Trump voters <laughs> or who are these people who voted for Trump? And I think this is one of the best movies made about that. Uh, things that maybe we were trying to ignore uh, up until the election that now are kind of front and center. But I mean, and I say we as in sort of like white, non-rural America, yeah. you know, things like racism are just kind of baked into the world. They are what they are. In Jeff Bridges' Texas Ranger character, you have his racist ribbing of his Native American partner. And the, the movie will let you laugh at that, but it will also make you sit with the way that his partner Gil, played by Alberto Parker, has to absorb that ribbing and the way that he has to toe the line only because of the power that his boss has over him. Um, you've got a surprising performance by Chris Pine in this movie. You've got a haunting score by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis uh, that really grants the movie gravity. It's telling you this isn't just a Western heist type fun movie. We want you to sit with mm -hmm. the reality of the situation here. And um, its setting is poverty and, and, yeah. and rural poverty. Um, I think it has a really great sort of traditional Western uh, ending to it. It was just a very satisfying movie watching experience for me. It gave me a lot to think about. It's just, it's, it stuck with me. I haven't yeah. stopped thinking about it. And I don't rewatch movies that often, as I said, and I've, re I've watched this one three times now. All right. So, Hell or High Water. Check it Number out if you five. haven't seen it. Number yeah. five. All right. So for me, number four is Get Out by okay. uh, Jordan Peele. This movie, I mean, I feel like a lot of people have seen this movie. It's not a, <laughs> it's not a sleeper movie in any sense, um, but it is one of those movies that did what it set out to do, I think, perfectly. Better than anybody's done it as far as integrating social commentary with genuine comedy and genuine horror and not tacking it on at all or making it something that you have to look at it through a certain lens to see it, but saying straight out, this is a social commentary and it is vital to all of the comedy, all of the horror, all of the drama. It's one of the smartest, I think, scripts of the year, certainly that it came out. And like, thankfully it won the Oscar for screenplay. Yeah, yeah. And the performance is Chris by uh, Daniel Kaluuya. The images of him entering the sunken place have sort of become iconic to the point of you just don't even recognize it. But if you really watch those scenes, that performance is unbelievable. Everything that he can convey in that, in those scenes is where a lot of the power of Chris's experience as a black man uh, really comes through. And I think in, in how much praise it gets, we almost forget how good it is. Right. Right. The idea that being black in America is a horror story is uh, profoundly powerful, and he did it without telling an oppression story. Mm. And so to be able to show what happens to black people, what the mindset is about black bodies, and still make that character just completely uh, empowered throughout is remarkable. And to make so many people, including white people, go and watch a movie about how really evil whiteness is, that in itself is a feat. It's just, uh, yeah, I, I think it's great. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I loved Get Out. It's weird because it's not on my list, but it's almost like it not being on a list is in a way 
a testament to how successful it is. Because to me... <laughs> Ooh, very nicely spun. <laughs> because to me... If, if by not putting on my list, I might be honoring it more than you. <laughs> uh, you know, what, what, ultimately what I'm saying is that, like, you know, this is mm-hmm. a genre film. This, yeah. is a, this is a horror movie. And um, I thought it was a really well done, exceptionally effective horror movie. Mm-hmm. At all the things you said with the social commentary and everything. And it's almost like uh, on my list, it's the horror sort of genre films they just kind of start to get mm-hmm. pushed down a little bit more for these movies mm-hmm. that I think do like kind of weird things in general that don't fit genres very neatly mm-hmm. it's such a courageous move on Jordan Peele's part to make a movie that's going to tackle that social commentary head on he did that and just made a a really successful mainstream Mainstream, mainstream mm-hmm. horror yeah. movie. That's about that. Mm-hmm. That is really something. Certainly, I, I I understand why it is making the lists and why it deserves to be one of the most sort of uh, talked about and and understood movies of the decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so my number four, uh, you know, not to jump right back into the conversation, but my number four mm-hmm. is The Master. Uh, oh, hey. And I don't have a whole lot more to add other than I find every time I rewatch it, I'm either watching it more from the from from like what is Freddie doing and I, or I'm watching it more from what's Lancaster doing, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Joaquin Phoenix or the Philip Seymour Hoffman character. And I think that you can have different viewing experiences every time you watch Definitely. it just by which character you pay more attention to. Um, I will also just point out that Maybe I was too unsettled the first few times that I didn't have time to really think about it, but this movie just has some really funny parts. Yes. That are hilarious. And we didn't really talk about that. That's another thing that I think people forget about P.T. Anderson is his comedic sensibility. There's a reason he is married to Maya Rudolph and is friends with Paul Thomas, uh, Paul F. Tompkins, and it it was like connected to the Largo at Coronet. Like he's, he's, his friends are comedians. Yeah. Uh, and what, there's even scenes that some there, I've watched it one time and I've laughed at it and I've watched it another time and it's been too painful for me to laugh at. Yeah. So the one in, I can think of in, in particular is when you're really first getting a sense of Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. What I think Philip Seymour Hoffman and, and uh, P.T. Anderson in the script nail is that seductive charm that a religious leader has when they're on the stage mm-hmm. that when you're a viewer and you're in on that, and you know this guy's a phony, mm-hmm. just looks so funny. Mm-hmm. So the way he gives the wedding mm-hmm. speech, when he's like, marriage, you know, and mm-hmm. he's just like talking about how it's so boring. You know, <laughs> like, you know, I, right. there's times I've laughed so hard at that, but then there's times I've like been in churches mm-hmm. where the pastors have talked too much like that, that it hurts yeah. to watch it. Mm-hmm. The way he says the word pig fuck. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that that's one of the scenes that stands out. And that is an intense scene. Yes. And we we haven't really talked about is that there's an intensity to this movie yeah. and there's no action. Yeah. It's just people talking to each other and people interacting with each other and the intensity and you can see like the 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 redness form in Philip Seymour Hoffman's face and also the intensity of just the unpredictability of Freddie's character yes. uh, and it's in his body language 100%. you know like the yeah. posture he has the way he stands when mm-hmm. he stands still mm-hmm. there's the unpredictability when, especially the first time you watch it of what is this guy going to do he's right. a loose cannon mm-hmm. I, I mean I, I, it really is one of the best of the decade and I think for cinema like when you I think people will be studying this movie for a very long time yeah and I think Two, when you're talking about whether you're watching it for Freddie or Lancaster, you also have the opportunity to watch it for Peggy, Amy Adams' character oh, yeah, yeah, as yeah. Lancaster's wife. Yeah, and you, you you get a sense of that. She's got her own plan. 
I never even considered that until I saw that there were three posters and uh, one was Lancaster, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman titled The Master. One was Joaquin Phoenix titled The Master and one was Amy Adams titled The Master. And I was like, oh, mm. yeah. <laughs> we are, we like the first time you watch it, you assume you know who The Master well, is. It was in control here. But yeah. then like the whole movie is about struggling for control over yourself. Mm-hmm. But when none of the people can have control over themselves, they all try to control other people. And Freddie does it through his unpredictability. He stays a step ahead by not even knowing himself what he's about to do. Right, right. Lancaster does it by more traditional means of controlling people's emotions and minds. And yeah. And And Peggy does it in a different way by kind of controlling the person who thinks he's controlling people. Right, right. So the master on both of our lists. Yeah, that means it's one of the best. That's right. All right. So we figured out one. Yeah, we did. All right. (laughs) So, uh, for me, number three, I am uh, sticking with Joaquin Phoenix. Okay. And for me, number three is her. I thought this might be on your Spike list. Spike Jones, Wynn Butler did the score. Mm. Amy Adams again. She, okay. So Evan and his said Oscar Isaac, actor of the decade. I think that there's a lot of a lot of validity to that. Now, I don't know if Amy Adams is the actor of last decade or this decade, but she is definitely up there as far as one of the most influential. Absolutely. And, by the way, versatile. Like, Sure. You look at the same person who can be an Enchanted and The Fighter and American Hustle and The Master like and Arrival. Like, come on. She can do everything. Yeah. So her, uh, again, this is a movie that's not really what it's about what it's about, you know? I think a lot of people were really put off by the idea that this was about a guy falling in love with a computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that's what you think this movie is about, that's it's not true at all. Um, for me, I was just so struck with the way this movie is about grief and our attempts to fill the void of a loss. Um, I've never been divorced, so I don't know what that that grief feels like. But to me, this movie is about divorce and grief and relationships and sort of just about a relationship where one person kind of grows past the other one, Mm -hmm. that that is a sad thing, but also not the worst thing. I didn't expect it to be as emotional a movie as it is. There are a lot of uh, powerful things that I kind of learned from the secondary characters of Amy Adams and Chris, Chris Pratt, the way they react to Theodore falling in love with the, the OS is really beautiful. Yeah. That's weird, right? That I'm bonding with an OS. No, it's okay. It's weird. <laughs> well, I don't think so. Actually, the woman that I've been seeing, Samantha, I didn't tell you, but she, she's an OS. You're dating an OS? What is that like? It's great, actually. Yeah. I feel really close to her. Like, when I talk to her, I feel like she's with me. Are you falling in love with her? So make me a freak? No, no, I think it's... I think anybody who falls in love is a freak. It's a crazy thing to do. It's kind of like a form of socially acceptable insanity. <laughs> it's a little bit remarkable that it, it's it's showing you this relationship as a valid one, but then at the end of the movie sort of saying that that, that would never be like enough for anybody, mm-hmm. you know? And to a degree, at some point, 
I don't think this is the main point of the movie, but it's one of the like things that I feel like the movie does for me is ask that question. Like, can we ever evolve past the need for human connection? And pretty much says, no, <laughs> there's a lot of like beauty and sadness to mm-hmm. our need to connect for, to humans, because there will be a time where we grow apart or we grow past each other, but we will always need it. And just that need is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say it's normalizing divorce or split ups or anything, but it is normalizing that things will go wrong and also that we will recover, that you can recover. There's, there's a resiliency there. Yeah. yeah. It's just such a beautiful movie to me. Yeah. Yeah. Great choice. So that's your number three. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So I'm going to get into my number three, and I will say that from here on, these three were really solidified rewatching them before this episode. So um, I have very kind of new, fresh experiences with them. And I will also say I'm I'm wondering if the next three movies are essentially just the same movie made three different ways. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You tell me what you think. But my number three is uh, Moonlight. A lot of people have seen this movie. It's been on a lot of the decade lists. Mm-hmm. I think every decade list I saw at least had it on there. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is, uh, you know, Barry Jenkins' uh, movie that came out uh, in 2016. And it definitely hits on, you know, the black experience. But especially on rewatches, it has really just sort of solidified as a beautiful poem of a movie. You yeah. know, what I can't really believe is, okay, this has to go down as probably the most mind-blowing movie poster i think of the decade yeah Um, and i think that movie poster kind of says it all i can't believe how consistent the three actors are Mm -hmm. that play this character of chiron so you've got um alex r hibbert who plays little that's the 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 boy the youngest the youngest the youngest chiron um you've got ashton sanders yeah plays chiron his section is called chiron right that's the The high school teenage chiron and then Trevante Rhodes plays Black, the right. adult Sharon. Uh, right. Now you may be wondering why I'm ready to talk about Moonlight. Okay. Let me get my number two out of the way. Oh, okay. All right. So we can talk about this at the same time. <laughs> we can. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, and you have so it a little bit Moon, higher than me. Moonlight is my is my yeah is number two on my list. Yeah. And I will tell you, the first time I watched it, I knew I was watching an amazing movie. Yep. But it it didn't have that personal experience. It was more sure. just like. I understand. Yeah. This is a very, very good movie. I'm aware that this is amazing. Yeah. Uh, and did it was, you see it in the theater? No, I did okay. not. Uh, and I think I should have. But really watching it the second time around, I was just incredibly moved. I could barely, I mean, moved physically. I could barely move after yeah. I watched this, yeah. uh, you know, the second time around. Um, but going back to this idea that how well those three actors play Chiron, mm-hmm. they get it down so well. I mean, it's in the eyes. It's in the facial expressions. It's in the way that their body moves. Uh, that sort of unsure of itself, uh, still yes. trying to find out who they are. I think, especially for me, when uh, when Black Adult Chiron is alone with Kevin, and you yes. see him go back into his like yes. quiet self, I couldn't take it. <laughs> that scene, uh, I just fell apart. That to see him being held and and yeah. really you've you've seen the context he's grown up in. You, your heart breaks for this character who just yeah. you know so wanting of love, mm-hmm. so wanting to be who he is, right? And just to be who he is, and mm-hmm. just never getting to really be able to do that, and to finally get just a moment with mm-hmm. this person who really sees him for who he is. Mm-hmm. 
and and sees him for who he has been all, mm-hmm. all along. And, you know, it's there's there's not much to it. They just hold each other. And you yeah. see that hardness that he's built up around himself physically just kind of fall away. The lighting is perfect for that scene. I think the camera's just sort of slowly gliding along and mm-hmm. And so much of this movie, I think, uh, also the tone is set by the score done by Nicholas Patel, who, I mean, honestly, um, this has to be one of the best scores of the decade, maybe only topped by his other score for If Beale Street, Street Guitar, <laughs> which if I had rewatched that one, that one might be up on my list, too. I, I agree. Um, yeah. So Barry Jenkins and Nicholas Patel, to me, is a, it's just a duo that is making some of the most beautiful, meditative, perfect cinema uh, yeah. right now. And there's so much we could talk about with Moonlight, I'm sure. If we yeah. ever, this might be one that maybe we should do an episode on sometime and really break down and, and talk about. But I think it'd um, be worth it. Yeah. I, I mean, so as far as the acting goes, something that, that completely blows my mind, and I would then credit Barry Jenkins, is uh, that the three actors who played Chiron and the three actors who played Kevin, they never met each other. Hmm. So that was not like with. Um, this feels like such a stupid comparison. Um, the the character who plays Draco Malfoy's father in Harry Potter <laughs> watched his previous oh, so scene could, so yes, he, could he could act yeah, like him. Yeah. So there was none of that that they were that they were calibrating mm, it. Yeah. Um. But but there is such a coherence to the three performances that without even needing to be told, you can tell. That, oh, that's Chiron now. Uh, and then as far as the 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 beauty of the movie. Barry Jenkins, cinematographer that he works with, James Laxton. And I, I wouldn't have thought of this until I heard, I think it was Wesley Morris from New York Times and uh, still processing. And he's a, a, a black man himself remarked that they know how to shoot black skin, like how to, yes, how to, yeah. how to film black skin and the depth of tones. That is like what makes this movie stand yeah. out. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I just watched this last night. Um, I knew it was going to be in my top five. I didn't know exactly where until I rewatched it. And um, yeah, as soon as it was over, uh, my wife looked at me and she was like, that holds up. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a sip to put it lightly. And I think it might be, uh, you know, 10 years from now, I look back and I don't know why Moonlight wasn't number one. Um, But uh, I'll talk about that when I tell you my number one. But uh, it's a marvel borderline perfect for me as uh like you like you mentioned a religious uh mm-hmm. person yeah. with a religious upbringing a conservative upbringing um a straight cisgendered white man to witness the story of a gay black young man and a man later in the movie um was profoundly humbling and remarkable to see you know uh it's been it's been a long process and like a long time since some of the things that i was led to to think early in my life have gone away but moonlight was another just sort of step mm-hmm. yeah, in like yeah. complete understanding of a story that is not one that I, I i have any context for it is uh yeah it's just so powerful I mean, we haven't even talked about Mahershala Ali, who won the, won the uh, Best Supporting Actor Oscar for this. And he is incredible uh, in his really brief time right, right. in the movie. The range that his character goes through, uh, the scene where he catches Naomi Harris, who plays Chiron's mom, uh, in the car. And then, for me, the scene where I can't hold it together is when Chiron asks... Yes. Juan, 
the kids are calling him the the f word, and he asks him what what that is, and Mahershala Ali's answer is moving in its honesty and its sensitivity when he says it's a word that people use to make gay people feel bad, mm-hmm. and then Chiron's two follow up questions: Does my mom do drugs? Do you sell, you sell drugs? Yeah. And Mahershala Ali's performance there is devastating. And in that little capsule, you really have what's devastating about the entire movie. Really. You have the struggle with his sexual identity. Mm -hmm. You have the struggle with a mother who's addicted to drugs. And then you have the struggle with a society that isn't going to help you with either of those. And Mahershala Ali is almost in that moment he's recognizing the weight of all three of those things right. for this little kid. Right. You know, it's a really, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think a lot, you know, the, the clip that always gets played is the swimming sort of, Which you know, is another, is another <laughs> amazing. Scene. That's where the score really the lifts score, that thing the up. The cinematography. You know, the way that the camera kind of stays at the water level the yeah. whole time. You get that experience right. uh, at a more personalized level with well, them. Well, in the spiritual know. level. I yeah. mean, it's such a baptismal sort of scene yes, too. Yeah. Kelsey remarked on that when we were watching it. The baptism, the holiness of that moment. Give me a hit. Let your head rest in my hand. Relax. I got you. I promise. I'm not going to let you go. Hey, man, I got you. There you go. Ten seconds. See that right there? You're in the middle of the world, man. That's good. Throughout, the movie kind of gives you these holy moments of somebody being... In that moment, like literally held and lifted up over the water. And then later somebody, again, well, literally holding, but like in a very different sort of sense. Those brief and fleeting moments in Chiron's life. If nothing else for this episode, I'm glad that I rewatched Moonlight. Me too. Me too. Yeah, yeah. And I think that could also be said about, since you already talked about your number two, two, I'll go into my number two, which is Ida. Polish film directed by Paul Polakowski uh, in 2013. You know, we don't get to really talk about foreign films too much on this podcast. You know, partially that's just because I can't really play clips of foreign movies on a podcast. They don't translate too well, but um, I, it is it is film I enjoy. And so I don't know if a lot of our listeners are foreign film watchers, but this is Ida, I-D-A is how it's spelled if you're seeking it out. Mm-hmm. So I don't think this was necessarily the debut film of Paweł Polakowski, but it was certainly my introduction to him. And I think yeah. it was a lot of American audiences' introduction to him. Yeah. It's just this gorgeous black and white film. Um, I don't have the exact runtime, but it's like seventy nine like, minutes. It's or like eighty right? minutes or something. So hey, if you want to just something, something you can knock off the list real quick, I highly recommend it for that reason alone. Even, mm-hmm. um, and it's got its own. You know, it doesn't have the typical aspect ratio. It's in the tight, you know, square yeah, aspect ratio. Um, and just watching a movie this decade that so much reminded me of watching like when I was really getting into film like Passion of Joan of Arc or Mm -hmm. Bresson or even like Knife in the Water. It feels very European. Yes. Maybe that's a turnoff for some people, (laughs) but I can't recommend this movie enough uh, for actually very modern reasons as well. It it, it sort of walks that tightrope of having a long tradition to it, Mm -hmm. um, but still being very modern in its approach. Um, And if you don't know a whole lot about it, um, the main character is Ida, and she's a teenager in uh, 1960s Poland. 
she's she was an orphan and she's basically training. I don't know if you call it training. She, she's getting ready to become a nun. Going through the process of going through the process of uh, becoming a nun because that's basically where she grew up. Her she, vows is it going through? I vows? don't know what, what it is. is. Making vows, nunning. Yeah. She's nunning it up, nunning it up. Yeah, about to. Because this is where she grew up. She grew up uh, being taken care of by nuns uh, because she was orphaned during the war. She finds out, and this really isn't a spoiler, it happens pretty early on, but she finds out um, that she still has an aunt who's alive. And she goes and she uh, gets to meet that aunt. The nuns actually say, you should go talk to your aunt before you take your vows, just so you can find out where you came from. Um, And that's really the movie. The movie is her discovering her roots, what happened to her parents uh, during the war, and also, uh, I find the uh, character of the aunt equally as fascinating in this mm-hmm. movie and her background, and also just finding out why she didn't take care of her. And what I really love about Paul Polkowski, you've, you would also see this later in his movie that came out last year, Cold War, is um, how he takes these very intimate stories that never really go outside of that intimacy. Um, he never feels the need to explain a whole lot to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're realizing that the way that these characters act, their mannerisms, the way that they interact with each other, all have a lot to do with the context that they grew up in. And me not knowing a whole lot about that context, which in both of these movies is post-war Poland, mm-hmm. um, it's fascinating to watch him sort of illuminate how much anybody's context informs who you are as a mm-hmm. person and informs your story. Uh, going back to Maybe all of my top three movies are the exact same (laughs) movie made. It's another one about uh, sort of a a shy, timid character who doesn't really know who she is and in this movie is just trying to figure out not only who she is, but what she should even do with her life after Mm -hmm. she finds that out. I saw it, but I only saw it once. And uh, so I'm sorry, I don't have more to to contribute. But yeah, from what I remember, the way that he informs you of what's happening in a scene is just by watching it play out. Yes. That it's very long takes of long scenes. Yep. And yeah, it's it's interesting what you're saying about context. It's almost less seeing people as personalities clashing rather than two completely disparate uh, contexts trying to form a new context. Right. And how difficult that, that really is. Yeah. Even your most hardened people, and you could definitely see the ant character played by, oh gosh, I'm going to mess this up, Agata Kuleza. <laughs> she plays Wanda, who's the ant. Um, and again, I think this movie is better the less you know about it when you watch it, so I'm not really going to spoil, spoil too much. Um, but just a hardened character like that, um, it's, it's not so much villainous, it's just heartbreaking yeah. once you find out more about that character. Yeah, and in a traditional cinematic sense, as slow as this movie is, like you said, the less you know about it, but like it uh, uses its, its time to not only situate you, but also pace it so that new information is as, I guess, life altering as it would be for the people in the movie. Yeah. And um, it has those moments where you might see some American directors take some cues from it, but it's really there in, in, in European films where you just have scenes that don't seem to have a whole lot to do with the narrative or the plot, but they're just the most memorable scenes. Yep. You know, scenes of her being introduced to just like the modern world and where it just lets you sit with her meeting a boy who plays saxophone in a, a mm-hmm. in, a, in sort of a, 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 a band Rock-ish that plays a night. Yeah, rockish, yeah. yeah. And it's 
memorable because it's so out of place in the movie, which has really set itself up as almost like a kind of faith journey, sacred, spiritual. And then here's just this piece of the modern just interjecting itself, but mm-hmm. still within that beautiful black and white photography. And so I love it. I, I love it. And mm-hmm. I loved it the first time I watched it. Um, I wanted to watch it again before doing this. I knew it would make my list. I didn't think it'd be number two until mm-hmm. I watched it again. All right. All right, so here we are. Well, yeah, and I, I actually thought we'd have the same number one, but the way you're talking about your top three, it doesn't seem like it. And if we do, then you just have a very different take on it, and that'll be interesting too. Okay. Um, so my number one, uh, I risk being overly predictable, but my number one is Tree of Life. Me too. All right. And I knew that would be predictable, but I, it's who I am. Yep. I figured this would probably be... I figured. It, so we can use use this time to talk about this movie. <laughs> yeah, and I, um, I, I mean, I don't need to justify it necessarily, but like the way we were talking about Moonlight made me sort of say like, why not Moonlight? Um, and uh, as my number one, um, and I guess in not keeping with the conversation about Moonlight, the reason Tree of Life is my number one is because it speaks more to my experience as a white man. Sure. Um, and, and same here. Same here. There's got to be something to process about that, but there's also something that. Um, I can't deny about what Tree of Life is getting at for me. And when I saw it, I was the son of a father and um, didn't have the contentious relationship that at least the older character, the older brother has with the father, um, played by Brad Pitt. But certainly the movie is dealing with fathers as context givers, Mm -hmm. (laughs) essentially. And we all have to deal with the context that we receive from our parents kind of coming into the realization of how much of who you are was formed by someone else. Mm -hmm. That in itself is a bit of a grieving process that you are not who you made yourself to be to an extent. And then also the forgiving process and the gratitude, the, the thanking process of sorting out how much of who you are came from your parents. How much of that do you need to forgive (laughs) Right, right. And how much of that do you need to... Give thanks for. Yeah, even. yeah, and honor. And if the need for forgiving far outweighs the need for giving thanks, you still need to pay attention to that part that like honors to give th- them, yeah, yeah. you know? And uh, now being the father of specifically a son is kind of tree of life, but just a, fa- a father... Um being aware of how easy it is to pass on or to project or to punish things in our children that we don't like about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we talk about scenes and this movie is arguably nothing but a bunch of scenes right? in the way it's shot. Absolutely. In the way the story is told. But oftentimes if a movie is like that, it'll feel very disjointed and it's hard to remember anything. This movie is... Each scene stands so well on its own that they're all come back to me. When I rewatch this mm-hmm. movie, I'm like, oh, I'm remembering everything. Right. I remembered all of this. If you just want to talk about movies that deserve to be talked about for the decade, as far as like, mm-hmm. you know, I think we'll be talking about this movie for a long time. Um, it, its form is very unique, but it's it's probably the the movie to me that best captures what memory feels like. Yes. Uh, you're actually watching a movie 
that you're already watching the movie as how you will remember the movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's like, true. you know, you watch a movie and you're very in it and it's got a linear plot. Maybe it doesn't, but you still follow it. And then later on, you just think you about it, it in together. Mm-hmm. This movie, you are watching the memory you will have of the movie. Uh, and, and, and that's fascinating to me. We saw a, a lot of Malik come out later in the decade. Yeah. And you could start to wonder. For better or for worse. Yeah, you could start to wonder if it wasn't a stroke of brilliance and was more just sort of a uh, a way he put together all this footage that he had. Uh, but I think in Tree of Life, it is undeniable how well the story actually does hold together in this yeah. movie. But I also think that if you didn't get the story the first time, that's understandable. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. And, and, and you never probably fully will. Well, it, you will. You'll get what But it only to your you. take on it. <laughs> You'll get what you need from it. Yeah. yeah. What it is to you. Um, I I do think this is one where you talk about how it moves you. It moved me spiritually. Yes. This whole entire movie is a spiritual experience yeah. for me. The way he pulls together your individual connection to the cosmic and the cosmic's connection to you individually mm-hmm. and to center that around questions that come up uh, about faith and about grief, especially. And to start this off with a verse from Job. What it opens with is, it's a title card that says, from Job uh, 38, 4 through 7, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So if I was grieving, Mm -hmm. and someone said to me that verse, Mm -hmm. how dismissive an asshole would that sound? If I said, where was God in this? And they said, well, where Where were were you? You You don't know. Don't question God on this. Malik essentially gives you that answer, but then cinematically shows you why that's actually a very graceful answer yeah. and why that's actually a very beautiful answer. Yeah, you're absolutely right that it could sound extremely sarcastic <laughs> right. um, or dismissive. And, and I'm not suggesting anybody goes and says no, that No, 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 no. And, and says, but if you saw Tree of Life, you'd get what I was saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, and I didn't even, get, I was going to get to grief for all the things that this movie offers. Uh, so as a son, the son of a father, as a father of children, um, there are just profound things to be thinking about. Um, there are convicting things to watch Brad Pitt's character do. And mm-hmm. the scene for one of the scenes that stands out to me is Brad Pitt after his son dies and he's reflecting on the way he had treated him. Yes. And he says, I, like, I made him feel my shame. Just that the ease with which... I can do that as a father, mm-hmm. not deal with it in myself and make it, make my kids feel it, you know, and then reflect. I'm, I'm not, I'm just being honest uh, on how that happened to me as a child too, mm-hmm. you know, and you could get mad and not forgive and blame, or you can say that wasn't my fault then. Like, I don't need to own that feeling, you know? Yeah. And there's a lot of freedom that came for me from watching this movie. Me too, me too. The way then that Malik shows the brothers passing that on to each other. Yeah. And it's almost unreal how he got the performances between the brothers. Like that scene with the lamp, sh- the lamp when he's yes. like to- telling him he won't shock him or whatever. Right. Like just the real fear on the kid's yep. face and the little moments that you remember. I remember those moments where I lost trust in somebody that I thought I cared about or cared about me. And I also remember being the older brother Mm. and knowing Mm -hmm. that I did something that was just genuinely evil Mm -hmm. and I didn't know why, but I did it anyways. Yeah. 
And this movie is filled with moments like that. So it can also, for me, be kind of a, a painful experience. Like, I don't want to go back to those moments. But I think it captures that age very well. Yeah. You are first acknowledging that people do things just to be mean. And that just you to be do evil. Things. That you do things. That people do, that they'll do them to you, but that also you have you will that do capacity. That. You will, you, yeah, and, and you will. And also... You know, it could be easy to just see Brad Pitt as the incarnation of all of that. Yeah. But he's not. You mm-hmm. know, there are moments. I mean, he is actually very tender often yeah. with his boys. And the reason the movie moves into a spiritually moving realm is that the movie positions God as the father mm-hmm. who has passed on things that we don't like, the evil in the world, the way of nature or the way of grace, you know, and, right. and how often we. It's easy for me to focus on the way of nature and say, where were you? How could you let this happen and that sort of thing? And ignore the presence of grace in nature, too, you know? Um, and a lot of people kind of were like, what the heck with, like, the dinosaur stuff? <laughs> but to me, uh, and I, this is, maybe it's just me, or me and you, I don't know. In the context of the movie, it is profoundly moving to watch that dinosaur show grace to the the hurt dinosaur right to show grace in the midst of an evil situation or to see someone vulnerable and you don't have to attack mm-hmm. them and again like her like manchester by the sea which i didn't get to talk about uh but this is a movie dealing with grief and there's the grief of losing a brother of losing a son but there's also the grief of just being raised by people Yep, you know? and the grief of 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 maturing. Yeah, the grief of growing up. Yeah, yeah, and and seeing and experiencing evil and being evil, and that loss of the idealistic sort of life. And you're 100 percent right that the movie contextualizes that Job passage of where were you into something profoundly comforting mm-hmm. that says to God, like when things go, that when the worst thing that could happen to you could happen, and you say, where were you? And you're asking about that moment. And God responds with, where was I? I've been here from the beginning. I've been here for all of it. And I've been here for the good parts too. And like, it's all part of this. Yeah, and it seems like that's kind of the answer is just, I was here. Mm -hmm. I mean, the number of times this movie asks through different characters, through different voices, where were you or where are you? Yeah. Uh, and then also asks, who are we to you within this very particular context, this very particular place? Mm-hmm. You could have a very different movie if it was just sort of like all about the big idea of yeah. it and have all these people from around the world ask the same question. But no, it's going to very much center you and not let you leave this mm-hmm. very particular context. Yeah. You know, and through that, uh, show you the equal beauty in the minutia of it, but also the, the cosmic realm of it. Yeah, it's like the movie is its own beauty, that if if you are in that moment and you just can't see the beauty in the world, you you just, you just you deny that there's anything good, like it's not apparent to you. The movie almost, in, a, in, in, in as far as from my, from my seat, in a non-pretentious way, in a non-prideful way, says, here's the beauty. Like, yes. listen to this, Beethoven piece. Oh yeah, when they look play at this, like look at these stained glass windows. Yeah, I mean it's it is just one that um, you you kind of have to give yourself over to it. Yeah. If I were thinking too hard about it while I was watching it, um, I could definitely see being like, you know, thinking he was pretentious. But 
I don't know why I've just always been able to just kind of let go. And it's always been an incredible experience. And putting such a sweeping orchestral piece like uh, Smetana's Moldau um, mm-hmm. over just kids playing on a summer night um, is just... That doesn't do it for you. I don't yeah. know. What, I don't know what's. I don't know what's going to do it for you. To say. <laughs> yeah. I have found with this movie that, especially as a father now, it has been instructive to watch mm-hmm. it every year. Mm. Um, it has been a reminder when I watch those scenes where Brad Pitt is kind of scary and you're seeing the effect that that has on his sons, that it is instructive for me to watch that because I have fallen into that. Mm-hmm. You know, I have been that father. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then there's also the acknowledgement and, you know, not to get too personal here, but, you know, Brad Pitt's father is a lot like my father. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there's been a process through that as well. And, and me seeing myself in that boy, I was like, there's no way this movie couldn't be number one for me. Sure. I just saw myself too much in it. But I think that what the movie offers is wherever you're at, wherever you identify with these characters, however much you identify with the movie, if you keep watching it, you are going to find ways to just not only see the beauty in the world, but to figure out for yourself who you want to be within the world and how you want to relate to people. I I said at the beginning that I wondered if my top three were kind of the same movie made three different Mm -hmm. ways. And I really only mean that in the way that if you watch this movie through the eyes of the older son, who is Sean Penn's character, kind of reflecting on his childhood. And how did I get here? And I think that all three of those movies and what makes them so beautiful, and I mean, you have Moonlight at number two, but I think what this decade has been about you know having something like where your country goes through an upheaval and you have this parenting thing that you're mm-hmm. you're sort of figuring out like my life is not what it was everything i thought i knew about my life is not the same anymore mm-hmm. and just trying to figure out like how did we get here how do we connect with other people what about me when i was younger has shaped me into who i am yeah. and how does that allow me to forgive other people and also make myself better now and figure out where i need to change mm-hmm. I, I just, this decade, I think that these were the movies that were wrestling with what this decade needed to wrestle with, at least for me. Yeah. You know? I agree. And I, I think it's definitely shaped my thinking for the better. One thing that I've noticed oftentimes, one, as like a teacher with other teachers, but also I think uh, a lot of parents or anybody will justify their most graceless or least gracious policies or behaviors when it comes to punishing or not forgiving or uh, disciplining as, well, in the real world, they'll need to blah, 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 blah. And one thing that I've been trying to think of as a teacher and as a father is not that I want to prepare my children or my students for the real world, but I want to prepare a world that I would like my children to live in, Mm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, people will take advantage of you. You don't do that. And yes, there are people who fear other people, that there are people who lie and who will create victims. And you don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live guarded and defensive and angry, you know? And that I think is what sort of like the tree of life and like a yeah. lot of these movies are kind of calling, calling us to. Yeah. 
I don't know if we need to do another uh, episode on Tree of Life. I certainly could. We uh, could keep yeah. keep talking about it, but um, I think that's a good way to end our, our yes. top ten. Yeah, I yeah, best buds, man. Best buds. This was good. Yeah, I like this. I, it was fun. I had a few just quick questions. that yeah. maybe you know more ways to kind of think about the decade. Uh, let's go through here. Um, so, so thinking about your list, mm-hmm. you know, what's what's a movie that you heard a lot about but that you missed, and you think actually could have had a chance on here, and we just kind of are laying our cards out, yeah. saying, hey, don't get on us about not having this movie on here because I didn't see it. Yeah, well, know? the rider uh, okay. is definitely one. Um, this year. Parasite or The Irishman. I haven't seen Both either of those. Both of those for me, too. Both of those for me, too. Uh, yeah. First Reformed mm, okay. is one that I haven't seen and I would like to see. Um, this isn't exactly answering your question, but movies that like maybe surprised me that it, that didn't make it. One of them, uh, Black Panther, which mm. I loved yes. when I saw it. And then I rewatched it and it really was not as exciting or as fun as an experience mm. for okay. me. It, it seemed a lot more conventional the second time around. Okay. Uh, for me, movies I missed, um, I didn't see Before Midnight. And then also for me, The Irishman and Parasite uh, yeah. were two that I was like, ah, you know, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so um, how about a movie that you most wish you had time to rewatch? Uh, because you think maybe it could have ended up on the list because maybe you didn't quite understand it. Um, uh, Inside Lewin Davis. Mm, okay. Um, I actually have a bunch. Um, Francis Ha. Yeah, same here. Boyhood. Yeah. Roma. Paddington 2. Okay, I could see it. It's, I still haven't seen that movie. Great. So. It's great. Uh, Under the Skin, uh, and then I talked about Phantom Thread is one. Oh, Margaret is one that I haven't seen that I okay. would like to have, and I'm almost certain it would probably be in the running because it's Kenneth Lonergan who did uh, You Can Count on Me and Manchester by the Sea, and those are two of my favorite movies. Yeah, um, but that one you haven't seen at all. I haven't seen Margaret at all. Okay. Yeah, so that, that would have been an answer to the yeah, first question. Sorry. What uh, about you? For me, uh, ones I wish I could have rewatched. Um, I actually was surprised I rated Call Me By Your Name so low in mm. my letterboxed, but it stuck with me. I can't, I've, mm. there are scenes in that movie that I've kept thinking about and mm. I really wish I could have rewatched it. Another one is a Korean film called Poetry that I loved mm. when it came out. Uh, I really think it probably could have made the list, didn't mm. have time to rewatch it. Calvary uh, is one. Oh, I've never seen that. Um, Nebraska. Mm. Honestly, for me, Of Gods and Men and Ida are two oh, that okay. I've only seen yeah. once. Uh, Fighter for me would have been one too that I think I need to rewatch. So yeah, lots there. So yeah. okay. Um, how about uh, because I don't think we've had enough time to sit with it. Is there a movie from 2019 that you've actually seen uh, that you think could end up on the list, but maybe you just haven't thought about it too much? Or what's a 2019 movie that so far is kind of like your favorite? Now I'm having a hard time remembering what movies from 2019 I've seen, but I will say that it just if we're just going by, had a great time watching that movie. Knives out. Knives out. Come on. It was so great. Uh, and there were a couple movies that I just had a great time. And that's actually sort of how the fighter made it on the list. I just had a great time watching yeah. that movie. Um, Scott Pilgrim could have been on my list sure. just for a movie that I've seen a bunch. And I love it every time I see it. Knives Out. If you haven't seen that, um, yeah. it's a blast. You will have a great time. Yeah. Um, for me, Knives Out. The other one that I think could, on further reflection end up being one of my favorites. Maybe not maybe not of the decade, but uh Midsomar. Oh, you saw I haven't seen that. Midsomar. It's kind of like an updated Wicker Man. Um yeah. it shocked me in all the right ways as far as a horror movie should. Mm. It's very unique. You had a really great uh performance by um Florence Pugh who's also getting talked up for her performance now in uh, Little Women. Oh, yeah. 
and Cheaty from uh, uh, oh from, uh, from the Good Place. Yeah, uh, William Jackson Harper. It is a strange movie. It is not for everyone. It's not everyone's cup of tea. I don't even know if it was really my cup of tea until I was done watching it, and I talked it over with a good friend of ours, um, and we both kind of after talking through it, we're like, yeah, that was a really great movie, uh, you know. <laughs> so that would be one for me. Okay, how about um, a movie that either is in your six through 10 or maybe just didn't make it that you just really want to champion because it's not, it's just not getting talked about a lot or you just really wish you had time to talk about it. Well, stories we tell. Um, and I would, I, I would, I, it would have been interesting to talk about Manchester by the sea more um, just because that movie, I hear a lot of people talk bad about it. Like, like, like it's a bad movie. Oh, I don't get or that. Or misunderstand it or, like a lot of talk about Casey Affleck's performance as being boring. Um, like he's not doing anything. And I'm like, that's anyway. Um, or people who are just so put off by the sadness of it. Sure. Yeah. Um, it is a sad movie. It is sad, but I all, but it's also very funny in mm-hmm. at, at times in really unexpected ways. But at the same time, the, the profundity of its sadness is so, delicately explored and understood this sort of like tree of life is like it feels like a movie that is about grief in the way grieving people need it to be Mm, yeah you know so it's not one that i would like to champion like it's an underdog or anything but just (laughs) don't uh, forget about it right yeah 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 and then definitely stories we tell is just a documentary unlike any other i've seen and what it's what it says about family and about our context Mm -hmm. like you were saying that, that basically our context is a story we tell ourselves. Yeah. And how does that story get formed? So many like sad moments and very funny moments in that documentary. Yep, yep. And then all the while you didn't know that it was messing with you. Right. <laughs> that is quite a, it's a great trick it pulls. Yeah. yeah. Um, so for me, movies that I really, I don't know about champions, the right word either, but one that I really wish we could have talked about a little bit. I've got three. Uh, one is, um, talk about documentaries. The one that I wish we could have talked about more is Minding. the act of, Oh, you were going to say the act of killing. I was going to say Minding the Gap. Minding the Gap is great too. Uh, but I was going to say the act of killing oh, uh, just as far as what that does. And that is a movie that I'm going through and saying I need to rewatch a lot. I didn't want to rewatch that nope. one. It is a heavy experience, but I cannot stress enough how important it is to watch it. Yeah. If you don't know a lot about it, it is essentially Joshua Oppenheimer um, as a documentarian goes to Indonesia uh, present day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Indonesia is a country where... In the 60s, I think, like 1965, I think, um, there was a military coup that took over a communist regime. Mm -hmm. And that military set up government, I don't really know what it is today, um, is still in control today. But they had a long campaign of just massacring tons of people uh, who even ostensibly could have been communists, Mm -hmm. a lot of people who weren't at all. And they had gangsters carry out a lot of these massacres. Mm -hmm. So Joshua Oppenheimer finds the gangsters uh, who are still alive and tells them and are holding high positions and are holding high and and they're powerful Mm -hmm. uh, and they're highly respected, but these are, these are mass murderers. Mm -hmm. And he tells them, um, that they get to make a movie about their history and they get to make it however they want. And the mm-hmm. documentary follows them talking through how they want to make this movie about mm-hmm. how they killed all these people. It's not it's light very viewing. Hard to watch. It's very hard to watch, but it says some really profound things about humanity's capacity for evil. Well, and what, what, 
what effect that evil has on somebody, even if they think it, it doesn't. Right. Really powerful documentary. Yeah. Um, two other movies I wish we could talk about. I won't really talk about them right now, but Ex Machina is one that I think oh, yeah, is yeah. really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I rewatched it, and uh, it didn't quite make my list. Mm-hmm. Very much like what we all thought her would be, I think, is sure. kind of what Ex Machina is. <laughs> yeah. But it's still good. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, and Oscar Isaac gives another great decade performance. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it's, a, it's a great movie if you haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one that I don't think a whole lot of people saw, but I would like to champion, is a movie called Columbus, uh, which came out yeah, in 2017. Yeah, I didn't see that. I know you really like that. Uh, by Kogo Nada. Small film. Columbus is just a name of uh, you know, a real town in Indiana that is known for its architecture. Uh, Kogo Nada uh, really does a great job of um, telling this very small story, uh, kind of about a, a townie. Um, who meets a uh, son of a famous Korean architect who is coming over from Korea and they meet each other. And it's kind of a small, maybe love story, maybe just friendship story. It's hard to kind of tell where it would go. Um, But uh, then it's just kind of shot within, again, context, this really beautiful Columbus architecture and small town Indiana. It's Mm -hmm. a great movie if you haven't seen it. You'll have to check it out. And last question. Mm Mm-hmm. So what are you thinking ahead for the next decade? What are you, you kind of hoping for in, in your movie experience? Yeah. What are you hoping to do with movies? What are you hoping comes out with movies? Well, I think uh, for one thing, on a, on a more surface level, one thing I miss about my younger years was knowing what movies I wanted to see. Hmm. I think the biggest hindrance to my movie watching is endless scrolling. Hmm. And I think I need to have a system of this is the next movie I'm watching. Yes. Like just make a list and that's the next thing I'm watching. And uh, that would probably help me watch a lot more movies. Um, That one's just sort of a personal thing. Uh, But generally I, uh, one I want to, to see happen in the film industry. We talked about a little bit before very briefly uh, about just increased diversity of creators. Yes. Um, More women writing and directing. I think TV, maybe TV is doing a better job of that, but just, Lo and behold, when you put women in charge of uh, writing and creating uh, art, it, it turns out pretty well. Uh, yeah. Of course, not all the time, but... Um, it definitely, it, it has at least the same track record yeah, as men doing right. it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe per capita, it's got a better track record. Sure, yeah. Um, and then you've got the same thing with uh, people of color. So just an increased total control given over projects to people who are, have not been traditionally represented uh, in those positions of power, owning studios and being producers. Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Calling the shots. Yeah. yeah, like AJ talked about, like we talked about, things are changing in the way movies are being made. Um, and if the people in charge are only people who've been able to benefit from the way things used to be, things aren't going to change in a way that needs to happen. Um, that being said, I would like to, for myself be more intentional about finding those movies that are made by people uh, who aren't, you know, white men. And right. again, yeah. white men are fine. Like I'm not, I'm not saying, but we're not worried about losing right. that. <laughs> right. And I, I'm embarrassed to say that when I was thinking of my top 10, my first ones were made, were, were male, male centered stories. Yep. Um, and mostly white male directors and writers. Yeah. That is especially true of earlier in the decade. Like, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. any, any movie I have that isn't that mm-hmm. is like later in the decade. Right. I caught it, you know. And that's true of anybody's list. Like if you look at um, 
any list that has come out, it's it's very very light on women, um, not only women directors and writers, but women centered stories. So just personally, those are things that I would like to seek out in what I view. Yeah. I share that that's kind of my number one thing that immediately came to mind. In fact, when we were doing this episode, I was saying to you, I texted to you and said, I don't know how we yeah. do this without it just sounding very, uh, you Dude-ish. know, dude-ish, I think is the word I said. Um, but that was something that was kind of, for me at least, starting to change as the decade was yeah. closing. And I just kind of wanted to continue. And I, and I wanted to even just get more in yeah. that direction um, because, and I think we said this, at least, I don't know what episode we said it, but I mean it is the right thing to do, but it's also just, it makes film better. Right. So yeah, I definitely hope, uh, hope for that as far as personally going. Um, yeah, I just kind of want to keep watching film. I think the, <laughs> the downside to streaming, there's a lot of upsides, but the downside is it's much easier just to binge or stream TV. Yeah. I love TV. I don't have anything against it, but film does its own thing. To me, it's kind of like the short story versus the novel. Mm-hmm. And the short story has its place. You know, yeah. when, a, when a film can really be a film, can say exactly what it needs to say in about two to three hours tops, that is a really great feat. And I want to maintain my love of that specific form. Right. And I want to keep making sure I watch as much movies. The other thing I'm kind of excited about for the next decade is that this is when my boys will come of age. Mm. And so the idea... It's crazy to think about. It is, isn't it? You know, the idea of really figuring out what movies I want to share with them, letting them find their own favorite movies is going to be exciting. Um, But, you know, I'm just excited to see what holds up. I'm excited to see actually what they hate that I loved, Mm. you know? Like, I think that's going to be really fun to talk through. And I'm I'm just, I'm, I'm really excited for that. And, you know, I'm excited for what you know, we continue to do with this podcast. I think, you know, yeah. it's been fun. And this has been, what, six years of our decade doing this? Yeah. I think. So, um, yeah, January will be six years. Yeah. So, uh, it's been fun to have an outlet to actually talk about movies. Yeah. This has been a, a nice, a nice experience for us. I hope it has <laughs> been for you as listeners. Yeah. Uh, obviously, we're best buds. And what it's a nice way to end the decade. It is. And uh, a nice way to usher in the new decade. New year, yeah. Um, so we, again, we will have our lists up on Letterboxd uh, mm-hmm. for people to check out so you can see maybe the extended lists. And again, if you have any further insights or still want to share those movies, you know, we're, we're still, we'll still take them. Yeah. All right. So why don't we go ahead and uh, talk about what we're going to do for that, uh, for that new year, that 2020. So it seems like uh, we've been feeling too good. During this episode. <laughs> right, right. Let's switch gears So we're going here. to, in the new year, follow our goal by watching a movie by a, written and directed by a woman, Mary Well, that's Herring. true. That's true. Yeah. We're going back 20 years to 2000. Which doesn't feel like it should be 20 years. Does not but, feel like it should be 20 years. But it is. Uh, and we are watching American Psycho. And there might be some political societal tie-ins. I'm, I'm guessing there will be, and it's what makes me kind of curious to yeah. rewatch it. I don't know how I'm going to feel about this one. I don't either. I do feel like I remember having watched it and thought, I, I really don't want to watch that again. <laughs> so let's do it anyways. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think it's, uh, I think it'll create an interesting discussion. I and I think there's a, probably enough listeners who have seen it mm-hmm. um, that even if they don't rewatch it, you know, it'll be something that they'll probably have enough of a, remem- a memory of to where they can join the conversation a little yeah. bit, you know. It'll be interesting. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that we've talked about Christian Bale that much either. 
Well, just at our Newsies fan club, but that's a different. I mean, on the podcast, of course no, we, no, of no, course. No. And we only talk about Newsies. Yeah. We don't talk about any other part of Christian Bale's career because it really it's just, doesn't matter. Well, it's the news crew. We don't. Right. That's the same thing we do with uh, Robert Duvall, too. We only talk about him in regard to Newsies. Yeah. It's the news crew. That's what we right. talk about. Right. If you want to, you have to join. Come to a meeting. To, yeah. Come to a meeting if you want to hear our mm-hmm. thoughts on uh, the Newsies and. And Christian uh, Bale in regards to Newsies. Right. And, and Robert Duvall. Right. Yeah. Well, everybody, really. Yeah. But we can't really talk about who's in the news crew. It's like members or well, not outside. Yeah, yeah. Well, the first rule of news crew: we don't talk about news crew. I mean, we we, we took that from Fight Club. That's really um, just a suggestion. We are allowed to talk about news crew if we if it comes up organically, and it did. The rule is: don't shoehorn talk of news crew into a conversation. Right. It has to come up naturally. Right. Which and I feel like. It is only now sort of starting to come up more naturally because uh, Disney Plus came out yeah. and Newsies is on there and people are starting to watch it. And mm-hmm. I've been kind of being like, you know, in, in this sort of uh, water cooler talk. Yeah. I've well, been you like, get a hey, feel. People are always talking people about Newsies lately. It, yeah. And I'm like, should I, should I interject? But interjection, specifically, we, we've said you don't yeah. interject about Newsies. Right. That's one of the... And so far, it really hasn't because the, the chance of someone talking about Newsies A and then also talking about... I wonder if there's a Newsies group right. or fan club, or out just there. really being as like really showing in a group setting that they would be a person who would enjoy the news crew. Right. Where it gets dicey is if someone's talking about like a local news group, right? Like ABC Seven News, news and, crew. The, yeah. you know, and they and they mention the term news crew. Oh my god! And gosh. it kind of is just like whoa. Should I mention this World's newsies? colliding yeah. sort of thing? It's a it's a weird like where do I know you <laughs> right. from? And then. Oh, it's not... Not talking about newsies. It's not that. Yeah. ABC7 Eyewitness News right, crew. Right, right. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But, oh, but then oh, sometimes no. they'll like say that and they'll kind of give me a little like wink or glance like, I, yeah. you know, did you catch that? Yeah. And I'm wondering like, maybe maybe they're part of this. Right. That's sort of the news crew model. Motto, motto, if you, 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 you can know someone, you know, like news crew people, the world will know. The world will know. Yeah. It's been good for us. It has been good. Well, all the people in our lives have appreciated it because it used to be all the well newsies. And talk about the, you know inserting it into a conversation inorganically. Oof. Yeah. If you we don't turn, have the news crew, we could turn anything into newsies. Talk. Try us. Yeah. yeah. Try us. There's it a lot was, of different ways you can try us. That's right. <laughs> try us through. What a segue. <laughs> try us through email. That's uh, feedback at canwestillbefriends.net. Mm-hmm. We have our website, canwestillbefriends.net. Yep. Uh, we are on Facebook. Can We Still Be Friends podcast, mm-hmm. if you want to search us there. Uh, we are also on the gram with no newsies. Yeah, no newsies talk there. Either. No, no, we don't need to. Nope. We have other outlets. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, hit us up on Instagram. What else we got? Oh, yeah, uh, uh, phone number. If you want to give us a call and leave us a message, mm-hmm. do that anytime. The number to dial is 847-306-9532. I don't think we ever recommended people put that on their speed dial, like as a, as a favorite. Right. You know, we could just put us in as a contact or a contact. You know, if you really want that, like two button, two tap yeah. access. If that's what's to, been, if that's what's been keeping you, and uh, you know, you should reach out to us about uh, any of our past episodes. Go to our website and check out our archive mm-hmm. where we have seventy nine episodes worth of wow. uh, stuff, movies to look through. You can tell us whether we've seen a Christian Bale movie. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and. 
you know, we don't say this very often, but, uh, you know, it is the close of the decade. So just ways that you could support us. Uh, the best thing you could do, leave us a little rating mm-hmm. and review mm-hmm. on Apple Podcasts or whatever other podcast platform takes reviews. Or just write it, like, on your blog, on your Twitter, on your Facebook. Yeah. Just spread the word. And I hope you guys have a great closeout to 2019, a great new year. Yeah, go get them. <laughs> go, yes. Go get them. Yeah. Go get them in 2020. That's the best pep talk we can come up with at this time of night. Yeah. Go yeah. get them. What's that verse from Job? Do we need to... Do it to it. Do it. <laughs> yeah, that's the next verse in Job after, yeah. yeah. It's where, just, were you, yeah where were you? The with? sons of God <laughs> saying enjoy. Right. Do it, do it to it. it. Yeah. In 2020. I don't know why you left that part out. But yeah, why you left that part out. But we're, we're, we're going to quote gonna it. We're going to add it. Do it to in it. The words of Job and whoever was speaking in that moment. Yes. Do it to it. And we'll catch you next year. Hi there. This is Chris Marchand. I'm from Peoria, Illinois. And I was just calling in to leave my best movies of the decade uh, list or, you know, my ramblings of what I thought was the best. And, uh, you know, these things are really, really arbitrary. But here's my list. Uh, Mad Max Fury Road. Arrival, Silence by Martin Scorsese, Get Out, and then Phantom Thread. And in thinking about these films, I really tried to think what what links them together. And to be honest and really simple, these are films that linger with me till today. They're films that I think about. Uh, I often think about the main character, Daniel Day-Lewis's character in Phantom Thread, the Woodhouse character. I think about him as the, the portrait of this unchecked artist allowed to do whatever they want. And I think about that a lot and about how that uh, reflects in my own life and people around me. Um, regarding Fury you know, Road and Arrival and Silence and Get Out, those are movies that kind of messed me up on the inside. And, and so I continue to think about them. Uh, they don't simply exist for the shock factor, but they do shock nonetheless. And they realign how I see the world and they make me ask questions about my own world and about myself and my, the way that I live they're about relationships, they're about community, and they're about where the world is headed. So, anyway, those are my lists. Thanks, guys.